you know, at breakfast this morning, I was talking to Mary Alice uh, as we're getting close to being at the end of the series, and I just told her, I said, I'm going to take a couple of things away from it. Um, first off, I was a little nervous about the series because, to be candid with you, I don't like to do anything that calls attention or even appears to call attention to myself. Um, and when challenged to come up with my favorite messages over 30 years, I didn't know, um, I didn't really know how to pick that. I just knew these were messages that meant a lot to me. But my concern was, it's not about a particular theme. You know, when we do a series, most, most of the time, it's about a particular subject. And so here were six messages. There were six independent themes, and I was a little nervous about that. But as I said, I'm going to take two things away from it. Number one is I've been blown away by how many of you have felt that God has had one of those particular messages speak into a particular season of your life. Uh, what happens the moment you die, God is faithful, snakes and fences. It's sort of been interesting to listen to you as you share with me how God has ministered to you during these talks. And if, if this is your first time to be here, if you're our guest, um, in 30 years, I've brought over 2,500 talks. And New Spring is still a fairly, fairly young church. I mean, if you've been here five years, you're like a charter member. So I tried to go back in time and pull messages uh, out of history. Today's message is the oldest of all. Actually, I preached this message before I came to New Spring. Uh, it's from 1981. But the first thing I, I took away was um, I've been sort of amazed at how God has, has worked in your life to bring these particular talks to a season in your, in your life. Um, the second thing I'm going to take away from it is, as I said, many of these messages were preached when I was a lot younger. And when I think about a message like God is faithful, uh, you got to realize I preached it when I was 44, I think. And in the meantime, God has done so many extraordinary things in my life. I just thought God was faithful back then. Now I know even more so. It, it, and I say all that to get you ready for next week. Uh, anytime anyone ever asks me, what's your favorite talk out of the thousands that you've given, I never have any problem answering that question. It's always Manasseh, and that's from a 1998 series called Living a Functional Life in a Dysfunctional World. I was telling Mary Alice, you know, it was true in 1998. It's so true today. You know, God's Word just gets more and more true as you live life. And so I uh, can't wait to bring that talk. I will just tell you this. Of all, the t of all the talks that I'll bring, no one I will enjoy bringing as much as next week. If you've ever had a hard time getting past something in your life, if you've ever had a hard time being able to forget something that was very painful in your life, I can't wait to bring next week's talk. Uh, today, though, I want to bring you a talk, a short talk, that we have ranked number two on our list. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever do anything extravagant for somebody else? I mean, something that was so extravagant, it made no sense at all. It was perfectly out of the realm of the norm. It was not your usual behavior. You just did something for somebody that made no sense. You were just blind to the cost. You did something extravagant and spontaneous. And here's the thing about it. It would make no sense at all until you factor in your love for that person. Maybe, maybe you just dropped your credit card and covered your eyes. But she was your daughter. I mean, what you did would have made no sense except you had to factor in that she was your daughter or your wife or your son or your husband or a good friend. You did something extravagant, and it would look crazy except for the fact that you had great love, made it make sense, sort of like what Jesus did for us. Have you ever considered the fact that dying on a cross for somebody else is crazy? I mean, when you stop to think about it, just dying on a cross for somebody else, if you could look at it from just a pure factoid, it would make no sense at all. For one thing, 
no, no death could be as painful as dying on a cross. We get our word excruciating from the Latin, means out of the cross. The Carthaginians invented crucifixion, but the Romans perfected it. And they used crucifixion to exact as much pain from their victim as they possibly could. No Roman citizen, regardless of his or her crime, no Roman citizen could ever die of crucifixion. It was such a brutal death. And when you think about Jesus' death on the cross, he really started suffering long before he went to the cross because the Bible tells us in Gethsemane he was under such emotional stress that it, the blood was seeping out of his pores. Dr. Saul says that's possible, but in the most extreme stressful cases. But he was going through the emotional turmoil. You, you remember he said to his father as he prayed, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. But that, that was so emotionally devastating to Jesus that the Bible says that he, he sweat as though it were great, great drops of blood. And then, you know, when he was arrested, he was brutalized even before he went to the cross. They pulled his beard out. They hammered thorns into his brow till the thorns sliced through his skin. They beat him with what historians call the cat of nine tails, a lictor would take a, a handle that would have nine strands of leather, and in those strands of leather would be jagged bits of metal and glass. And historians tell us that when the lictor would bring the whip down on the person's back, those jagged bits of material would embed into the skin, and then the lictor would rip the skin off the body. And, and there are historians that tell us about victims that didn't survive the beating. Then after Jesus survived that scourging, they laid a Roman cross on his back, and he carried it down the Via Dolorosa through the streets of Jerusalem to the trash dump called Calvary outside the city. They nailed him to a cross, and for six hours he, he struggled for every breath of air. You have to realize that on hanging on a cross, one's head would sink into the chest cavity, cutting off the air supply. So in order to get a breath for six hours, Jesus would have to push off against the nail that held his feet in the footpiece and pull up against the nails that held his hands on the cross. He did that for six hours. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. Doing that for somebody else is crazy. Unless the people that you're doing it for are in a lot of trouble and you love them a whole lot. And if you don't do what you're doing, they're going to go to hell. You see what I mean? I, I, it's possible to do something for somebody else that's so extravagant that it makes no sense except the love that you have factors into it and makes it reasonable. I'm just asking you, did you ever do something for somebody else that would have been extravagantly crazy except your love for them made it reasonable? But since Jesus has done that for you, could I ask you another question? Have you ever done anything extravagant for Jesus? I want to tell you a story, and we're going to look at it today. And then I'm going to leave it with you. I'm a big believer when it comes to preaching that the Holy Spirit is the one that does the real preaching. My responsibility is just to tell you what God's Word says and let you take it home with you. My guess is that if you really do apply your heart to God's Word and hear that the Holy Spirit continues talking to you when you leave, I'm never, I never cease to be amazed at how much, God, how much economy there is in one message. I can bring one particular message and God can reach somebody who's been a long-term God follower and give them something, and somebody could be here and be a non-theist. This could be the first weekend that they were ever here, and they're not even sure they believe in God. I, I, never, I never can understand how God can take the same message and utilize it in both people's lives. 
but that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a talk today. I'm going to tell you a story, and then I'm going to let you take it home and see what you feel like God would have you do with it. This story is in three of the Gospels. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the books of the Bible that tell the story of Jesus. And it's amazing sometimes when you read a story in the Gospels, if it appears in more than one, you can begin to piece together details. You know, one writer will put details in that the other writer leaves out. And so I'm going to read John's account, and from time to time we'll appeal to the other writers to learn this whole story. So read with me, if you will, please. And we're going to read the first eight verses of John chapter 12. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead. I love that expression. Whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. The Greek word is kleptes. We got our word kleptomaniac from that. This he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. And he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have with you. In order to understand this story in its full ramification, you need to think about the timing. Uh, this is the week before Jesus will die. In fact, it's now less than a week before he will hang on the cross. I think it's probably Monday or Tuesday night. I lean toward Tuesday. So, it's, it's probably within three or four days from the moment that Jesus will die on a cross. Keep that because it's important to remember. On this night, Jesus is in Bethany. Bethany is a little town that lies two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. And if you think about Jerusalem, it's, it's a strange place for this week because the week begins with the people of Jerusalem cheering Jesus and strawing palm branches in his path and calling him the king. And yet by Friday, the same city will be demanding his execution, crying out, crucify him. Mob, mob, mob judgments are strange. And that's what's going on in Jerusalem. But on this night, Jesus is in Bethany, and he is with friends. Your Bible says, you read it with me just a moment ago, they made him a supper. They made a dinner party for him. That was a bold thing to do. Because you and I were reading in chapter 12, but we were to throw it in reverse and back up into chapter 11, you would see in verse 57 that the powers that were, the chief priests and the scribes said that if anybody knew where Jesus was, they were to turn him in. Jesus was a wanted man. There was a price on his head. And so in Bethany, two miles away, for these friends of Jesus to throw him a dinner party, that was a courageous thing. And we'll hand it to him for that. We'll say that, that was a courageous thing to have a dinner party for Jesus when there's a wanted poster for him in the city hall. Matthew, in his version, tells us that it was in the house of Simon the leper. I don't know why they called him Simon the leper. I mean, it's like he had it printed on his checks, but that's what Matthew calls him, Simon the leper. It was very clear he's not a leper anymore. See, leprosy was a disease that demanded that a person be segregated or separated from the populace at large. It was considered very dangerous and very contagious, 
So if a person had leprosy, they had to go out and live in a leper colony. So the fact that Simon was still there meant that he wasn't a leper anymore. No doubt his healing, or interestingly, the verb that's used about leprosy, his cleansing, came about because of Jesus, the guest of honor. So it, was at, it was at his house. And, and we also learned that somebody else was there, Lazarus. And I love how the Bible says it. It said he had been dead. Now, that's interesting to me because people ask me all the time, how have you been? They, I don't, you, know, you know, how have you been? Well, I've been sick. Or how have you been? I haven't been feeling too well. How have you been? I've been, I've been under the weather. I mean, can you imagine asking Lazarus, how have you been? I've been dead. <laughs> uh, Lazarus is the only one at the table who could say that. Now, I, I've been dead. So it's interesting to me that if you, if you start to imagine this with me, Jesus is at a dinner party with a leper that he had healed and a dead man he'd resurrected. No wonder they threw him a dinner party. I mean, Jesus is the center of attention. By the way, he should be the center of attention when we get together too. You know, New Spring is a great church, and we have thousands of great people. And you know, we should honor all the people who do great things for God here. I mean, every weekend it takes 800 volunteers to pull off a weekend. And we honor those people, and we honor our leaders, and we honor all of you who are New Springers. But, ladies and gentlemen, let's never forget that we get here to we come here to celebrate Jesus. He, he's 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 who we celebrate around here. He ought to be the center of attention every time we get together. You know, and this is another thing. This is July. And we're a long way away from Christmas, but it doesn't it start to be a little bit unseemly to you that we have Christmas and yet it's like in our culture we have to leave Jesus out. But not in here. I mean, the rest of the world may not like Jesus, but we love him here and he's the center of attention. You know, he may be a hated man like he was in Jerusalem, but in this house, he was the center of attention and that's how it should be here today. I mean, isn't it true that there are some people here that he has changed our lives? Aren't there some people here whom he has healed us emotionally and spiritually? Aren't there some people here that he has resurrected, he has brought us back to life? We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but he came along and he changed us. That's why he's the center of attention. Well, anyway, they made a dinner party for him. And, and I have a vivid imagination. I would have liked to have been there. I, like, I could have been like Thomas Gustain's novel. I could have been below the salt. I wouldn't have even had to have eaten. I would just like to have been a fly on the wall. Because I think Jesus would have been really interesting to watch. I think he smiled a lot. Don't you? You know, some people have a, you know, I, some people's religion just makes them sour. I don't think Jesus was like that. I think he liked to laugh. I mean, when I read his teachings, I find humorous lines. I think he laughed. I think he liked a good story if it was clean. I think Jesus, he, I would have just liked to have seen him laugh. I would have liked to have seen his smile. I would have liked to have heard his voice when he talked. I would have liked to have heard the things that he said. It would have been great to have been there. But it's, an, it's a dinner party, and it's in his honor. And I've been to some of these parties. I've, I've, I've been to parties where guests were being honored, and, and, and I've seen situations where one by one the people at the table would stand up and give verbal tribute to their guests. And maybe they did that for Jesus. I hope they did. I hope the disciples, I'd like to have heard Peter say, well, I was nothing. I was nowhere. I was a fisherman. He came along. I was cleaning my nets, and he called me. And wow, I've had these three years of Jesus. I would hope Peter had so, something like that to say. 
I hope Simon said, you know what? I had to withdraw from society. I had all these lesions come up on my skin. Nobody wanted anything to do with me. I lost my job. Jesus came along. He healed me. And, and I'm here tonight because of Jesus. And like I said, I would have really loved to have heard Lazarus' story. I was dead. My body was in the cemetery. He called my name. I'm here tonight. I would have liked to have heard that. So maybe they did. Maybe one by one they stood up and gave verbal tributes to Jesus. And we are told that Martha served. Martha was a doer. And that's how she expressed her love. And no doubt she was very careful to get Jesus' favorite dishes that night. It, does, it might not have even been her house. She might have been somebody else's house. But she was so well known to be a doer. It's like if you have a dinner party to get off, get Martha to run it. And I know she had all of Jesus' favorite dishes. Barbecue, potato salad, <laughs> shrimp cocktail, chocolate ice cream. But in the background was Mary. Somehow, I get the idea that Mary was a quiet one. I don't think words came easy for her. Her sister, on the other hand, had no problem saying whatever was on her mind. If it was in Martha's head, it was in her mouth. And maybe that's the reason why Martha was a quiet one. Any of you grow up with a very verbal older brother or sister, and you would have spoken if you ever had a chance. Uh, maybe that's how it was with Mary. But Martha, I mean, she said whatever she, whatever she wanted to say. There was another occasion when Jesus was at their house. And he was in their living room. And he had his whole posse with him. And Martha had the responsibility of getting off dinner for this huge crowd. Because that's what Martha does. And Martha's getting dinner ready. But it's not going well. Things are, things are it's just not up to her standard. And Martha looks around and realizes she doesn't have as much help as she thinks she should have. Where is her sister Mary? And when she scouts to the house, she discovers Mary, to her amazement, is sitting down in the living room listening to Jesus talk. And Mary loses it on Jesus. Can you believe that? I mean, uh, Martha, Martha is so upset with her sister Mary being there that Martha loses it on Jesus. She says to him, Lord, speak to my sister. Make her get up and come into the kitchen and help me. Whoa, you are a brave person to lose it on Jesus. Well, like I say, I, all, I'm, all I'm making the point of is that Martha didn't have any problem saying what was on her mind. And then last week when Lazarus had died, you, and I talked to you about this in, in the first message of our series, you know, Mary and Martha just sent off a text to Jesus and said, hey, your buddy's sick. I mean, Jesus and Lazarus were close. And and they, I mean, Jesus healed total strangers. I mean, they just knew Jesus would drop what he was doing, catch the next thing smoking and head for Bethany because his buddy was sick. But he didn't. And he stayed where he was. And Lazarus died. And when Jesus rolled into Bethany, Lazarus had been dead four days. Martha, when she saw Jesus, she bolted out of the house, went right up to him and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That was turning out to saying, I blame you for my brother's death. And John adds this little phrase, but Mary sat still in the house. If you're somebody who has a hard time putting your, your feelings into words, I think you have a kindred spirit in Mary. But don't be fooled. Because although Mary doesn't say much, she loves deep. Hey, when I was a kid, 
Growing up in Texas, we used to have a saying. Maybe you guys had it where you are. We used to hear, still water runs deep. That means sometimes people who aren't real verbal, they have a lot deeper feelings and emotions. And that's Mary. Mary, Mary doesn't talk a whole lot, but she loves deep. And Mary is a watcher. And, and if you're one of those people like Mary that doesn't talk a lot, you have a hard time putting your feelings into words, that could be true about you too. You see things other people don't see. Maybe they're busy talking. But Mary is watching all this. And she's watching what people are doing for Jesus. And I guess she, she hears the verbal tributes. She hears what they have to say. And, and she looks at Martha in there moving pots and pans around, making Jesus' favorite dinner. And then she looks at Jesus. And Mary's thinking, this is not enough. It's not enough. Maybe, maybe this would be enough for the mayor. Or maybe this would be enough for the governor. It might be enough for Caesar. But it's not enough for Jesus. Something more needs to be done. Mary knows what to do. She has a plan. Over at her house in her closet, Mary has a very prized possession. There is an ornate alabaster box. And in that alabaster box is a pound, not a quarter ounce, not an ounce, but a pound of pure, unadulterated spikenard. That rare white Roman, the rare white fragrance that was a favorite among Roman royalty. It's so valuable that it's hard for us to put into modern terms. You know, I bought, I bought fragrances for Mary Alice. I know that when they, start calling, when they stop calling it cologne and perfume and start calling it parfum and they start selling it by the quarter ounce, I know to get out my heavy-duty credit card, okay? And I have bought some expensive fragrance, but I've never bought anything that was worth a year's pay. I mean, by modern standards, that would be between thirty dollars and $40,000. And in Mary's closet, she has this box of, of fragrance. Like I say, worth thirty dollars or $40,000. It's a treasure of a lifetime. My imagination runs away with me. I see Mary. She doesn't use it very often. See, she only uses it when she's getting ready for a very special occasion. Maybe she's going to a graduation or a wedding, or maybe she's going out on a special date. But I see her in my mind. Mary, when she only uses this box when she's having something real special. She selects that perfect gown, selects the perfect dress, just the, one, the right one, the one that brings out the blue in her eyes. And then after she gets the, this gown on, it's the right shoes, and then it's the right... It's the right accessories. It's, that, it's the necklace and it's the bracelets and it's the earrings. And when her hair is just perfect, the last thing she does before she leaves the house, she will take out the alabaster box, open it carefully, and touch her finger to that waxy fragrance or maybe touch her handkerchief to it and then touches it to her skin. But this she does only sparingly because the treasure of the alabaster box is meant to last a lifetime. She has a plan. See, in Jesus' day, if somebody was a very special guest in your home and you had any kind of special fragrance, what you would do is you would take a small sachet of that fragrance and you would put it on the guest's head. And, and throughout, throughout the evening, the body heat of the guest would melt that fragrance and the fragrance would, would, would be felt or, or would be scented throughout the room. And that's Mary's plan. 
I mean, nobody, nobody remembered to do that for Jesus. I mean, they, 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 have, they have food there for him, and maybe they're saying nice things about him, but somebody forgot to do the fragrance thing. And for Mary, only the best will do. I'm sure she had other fragrances, but nothing like this. She went to her very best. You got her in your mind now? She's leaving her house with the box. She goes back to Simon's house. Nobody else sees Mary. She's not the kind of person that you would see. You know, she's so quiet. Quiet Mary, she's in the background. And all the people are talking. Nobody is watching her yet, but you and I see her. We see her in the doorway, and the camera pans in tight to Mary. And we're watching her. And Mary's standing there. We know what she's going to do. Any moment when she feels like the moment is right, she's going to slip into the room. She's going to go up to Jesus. She's going to reach in, take that little sachet of fragrance. She's going to put it on his head. Oh, we know what she's going to do. But she's staying in the doorway. What's that we see on her cheek? It's a tear. Mary's crying. See what's going on inside of Mary's head is memories because as she, as she stands there and looks at Jesus, she begins to remember things. She, she remembers the first time she ever met Jesus. She had doubts and fears about what was going to happen to her. And I, how would she know how to go to heaven? And, and Jesus, Jesus taught, and he told her how she could be forgiven and how she could have a relationship with God. And Mary remembers when she prayed and invited Jesus Christ into her life and knew for sure that when she died, she was going to heaven. And there were all those times, as she, as she thought about it, all those times when he stood in her living room, and it's like he opened up heaven and like brought all these answers to her and gave her peace. You know, yeah, there was that thing last week when Lazarus got sick, and she had been holding his hand when he died. And she was there when they prepared his body and took it to the funeral home. And she was there at the funeral and went, went through the procession out to the cemetery. And she was there when they rolled back the stone. And they put Lazarus' body in the grave. And it felt like her heart was going to explode when they rolled the stone back. And Mary had gone home with her sister Martha crying without Lazarus. But then Jesus had come to town and called his name. And there he was at the table. There she is. She's moving now. She said it right for Jesus. But when she gets to him, instead of taking out a sachet of fragrance, she simply collapses the alabaster box and in a second pours out the treasure of a lifetime, $40,000 worth of fragrance, pours it out on Jesus in a second. I know she didn't plan to do this because she's unprepared. As the fragrance goes down Jesus' body and is on his feet, she, she realizes she has nothing to wipe his feet with. She, she doesn't have a towel. And Mary does something that means nothing to us in our Western world, but to the Eastern, in the Eastern world, to the Jewish world, what Mary did was unthinkable. She took her hair down, and she used her long hair to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. That was the act of a servant girl. And Mary was a well-to-do woman. She was a lady of standing. Interestingly, no place in any of the three Gospels is there ever an indication that Mary ever said one word. She just broke the box and poured out all the contents on Jesus. 
Now it's like all the film begins to run again. And, and see, here's the thing. Up until that moment, the, there had been one narrative. It had been a dinner party for Jesus. Mary does this, and suddenly in one second, it changes the whole narrative. It changes the whole dinner party. In fact, you and I would never know about it. It would have, it would have been an, an, an unimportant dinner party if Mary had not done what she did. But even though people may not have seen her before that moment, they certainly see her now. And two things happen immediately when Mary breaks the box on Jesus. And the first one is hard for us to grasp. You know what the first thing that happened was when Mary broke the box on Jesus? Criticism. Criticism. John tells us it was Judas. John said Judas was there and he said, why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? Mark tells us that some of the disciples were unhappy, but Matthew says all the disciples were unhappy. Maybe it started with Judas. Maybe Judas said, I don't get this. I, I, this, this woman is crazy. And maybe some of the disciples said, well, you know, I don't know that I don't, disagree, I don't, I don't, know that I don't agree with Judas. I think maybe this was, or uh, this is not a good idea. And then before long, you know how it is. I mean, people are swept right along. In Matthew 26, verse 8, there's a question. The disciples, Jesus' disciples said, to what? purpose was this waste? I can never understand when people do something extravagant for the Lord, why otherwise reasonable people will feel like it's a waste. When I was 16, I really fought one of the greatest battles of my life. I had thought up to that point that I wanted to go into law and then into either broadcast journalism or politics. But God began to deal with me about doing what I do. I went to a large high school. I had a lot of American history teachers. And you know how it is if you're in, in teaching. You sort of like look at people that you teach, kids that you teach, and you wonder, you know, do, am I teaching somebody that's going to go on and do great things? And so, you know, it was kind of the standing joke with me from the history teachers that I was going to go on and do something great. I remember going to my particular American history teacher, whom I loved a great deal, and I told him, I said, I'm convinced that God wants me to be a minister, a preacher, a pastor. You know what he said to me? He said, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that, Mark. That's too bad. He said, you could have been somebody really important. Oh, he was just saying what a lot of people think. I talked to a young man not long ago. He feels that he's called into ministry, but his dad wants him to take some other kind of training first so that he can, he can earn money if it doesn't work. I, I don't understand why otherwise intelligent Christians have a sense that if somebody does something extravagant for God, does an extravagant gift, uses their life in a special way, that it's a waste. Maybe it tells us about what we really believe. Because when this woman did this, when Mary poured the box on Jesus, the, uh, the, the contents of the box, the disciples said, to what purpose was this waste? I'm so glad Jesus said, let her alone. It could be that somebody listening to me today, you're thinking about this. You say, well, Mark, I'm never sure I've really ever done anything extravagant for Jesus, but I'm thinking about it. Well, 
prepare yourself for criticism because there are going to be people who are going to think you're crazy. But don't let that stop you because the second thing that happened is the one that really gets my attention. The Bible says, but the house was filled with the fragrance. Let me ask you a question. What do you think was the more powerful sensation in that room? Do you think it was the whiny criticism of a bunch of sour-spirited men? Or do you think it was that magnificent explosion of fragrance that happened when Mary broke the box on Jesus? I guarantee you, the fragrance trumped the criticism. Let me put this in practical terms for us. What was it that Mary did? What was it that Mary did that translates to your life and my life? I wrote it like this. Mary seized her moment to love Jesus extravagantly. And it changed the whole atmosphere. See, Mary's moment was a few days before the cross. You and I don't have that moment. We live in the 21st century. So what is our moment? What is it that would be extravagant for Jesus today? What is it that he wants? I mean, you know, when Mary Alice has, Mary Alice's birthday is this week, I'm going to ask myself, what would Mary Alice want? I mean, I, I know I, I'm not going to get Mary Alice a, a handgun or, you know, a fishing rig. <laughs> I want to think about what she wants. I mean, what would Jesus want? Well, we know before he left town, he said, I want you to go into all the world and tell everybody the good news. So anything you and I do to get the good news to people is, is something that we know he would want. I mean, think about this. Do you realize that until 1830, there weren't one billion people in the world? First 5,800 years of recorded human history, there was, there was not one billion people. Not till 1830. 1830 was when we had one billion. By 1930, we had two billion. By 1960, we had three billion. Today, we have over seven billion. Do you realize that? Like I said, it took over 5,800 years of recorded human history for us to reach the place with 1 billion people. In less than two years, look, less than 200 years, we have gone from 1 billion to 7 billion. And according to Jesus, there's a broad road that leads to destruction, and more people are on that road, and there's a narrow road that leads to life everlasting. So I'm guessing that for Jesus, if we were going to do something extravagant, we would do something in order to help those people that are on the wrong road get on the right road so they would know his love and his compassion and his care and his sacrifice that he has made for them. Well, that's what it would mean to break the box. Well, we're in one of those categories. We're either like smug disciples that just sit around and we score how, what everybody else is doing. That's not a new spring thing, so I'm not worried about that. Or we're in that kind of like moving pots and pans around for them like Martha. That's a good thing. We could even be like Mary's first idea, which is to take a small sachet of fragrance. In other words, we've, we've got some serious gifts of our money, our time, and our giftedness. We're doing that. Or it could be that in the heart of some woman, some man, some teen, some kid here today, there's an idea that says, I love him so much. It might seem irrational, but I want my gift to break the box on Jesus. It matters, you know. 
Well, I haven't brought this message in years at New Spring, probably 10, 15 years. But I have brought it hundreds of times. You know, I, every minister is going to get known. If, if he travels and he speaks, every minister is going to be known for a particular message. And probably I'm known for breaking the box more than any other. I've had, when I've done conferences, I've had leaders say, look, we don't care what you do as long as you bring breaking the box. But that's been a long time, and I haven't brought it too many times lately. But there's one time I remember probably about 20 years ago that added something to the message that, um, and I can't take credit for it. I didn't, I didn't add it. I was preaching in Oklahoma, and I preached breaking the box. And when I got through, we had the service, and a lot of people met me afterwards. But there was a 16-year-old girl that was in the line of people. I think she was at the end of the line. And, and uh, she had wanted to tell me that a year before when I spoke at a camp service where she was, that she had accepted Christ during that camp service. We had a really extraordinary camp service. A lot of people made decisions for Christ, a lot of teens. And she wanted me to know she was among the teens who had accepted Christ the year before when I preached at camp. And so after she told me that, she turned around to walk away, and then she came back and she said, I just thought about something tonight when you were preaching, Pastor Mark. She said, I just realized that when Jesus was on the cross, he could still smell the fragrance in his hair. I told her I'd always give her credit for that. I think that's one of the best lines of all. What have you done for Jesus that's extravagant? We're talking about somebody who hung on a Roman cross for you and for me to get us out of hell into heaven. What have we done for him? Is it little? Is it safe? Is it comfortable? Is it significant? Is it extravagant? Well, like I told you, it's at this point, I'm going to leave it with you. Thanks for being here. God bless.